Good morning. It is Monday, August 24th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, we are joined by both of our hosts, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman and Jenny Chadwick, to discuss the increase in local cases, parties shut down over the weekend, and more. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the airwaves. Good morning, and thanks for joining me, Jenny. Absolutely. It's nice to be on um, on the other side. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to just let people know that um, you know, things are getting different in Columbia, in the central Missouri area, um, uh, regarding um, case counts and um, uh, activity. So, you know, the students have returned to town, the college students have returned to town, and what we're seeing is an increase in um, cases starting, at, you know, about the, you know, a couple of days ago. So about two weeks after students have come to town, this is correlation, not causation. But we set records for numbers of towns, numbers of daily cases. So on the 19th, we had 59 new cases, which was a match of a record. On 60, on the 20th, we had 64 cases, which was more than ever. Uh, on the 21st, we had 81 cases. On the 22nd, we had 78 cases. Typically, Saturdays are big days. And then usually we're seeing uh, Sundays being lower uh, reported days. So often it's 10 to 20. And there were 41 cases. So less than there had been the days before. But um, double or triple a Sunday from the previous weeks. And then the... um, Columbia Public Schools uh, has their um, data that they're looking at, their tracker, and their number has been going up uh, consistently since uh, August 18th, so on the uh, 19th. So while we were talking about what Columbia Public Schools was going to do with a big uh, determinant at 20 about whether they'd be in um, full offering full-day class, uh, five-day classes or a um, or the hybrid model where it's just two days in classes, we were in the 20s, and now we're 26.5 on the the 19th, 29.5 on the 20th, 34.2 on the 21st, uh, the 22nd, 36.2, and yesterday at 38.7. And um, the cutoff right now is that at 50, um, Columbia Public Schools will not offer any in-person educational um, uh, services for most students. So that's our local numbers. Matthew Holloway is reporting that we have, uh, Missouri has reported 76,502 cases with 787 new cases yesterday um, and 761 cases among uh, offenders per the Department of Corrections website. Apparently those are not included in our total numbers. Um, We continue to uh, statistically trend upwards, although a couple of for the last couple of days we've been stable or declining. Our rate of positivity has moved up to 11.3 percent, um, and we have um, uh, 1,560 uh, deaths in Missouri. Um, Boone County is at 1,964 total cases and five deaths. So. Um, Last week, uh, I was pretty vocal about the fact that the University of Missouri had closed their on-campus testing site. Um, 
that was at the Hearn Center, uh, probably because they needed the parking as students returned to town. But it was an unfortunate intersection that um, students who live on campus um, were not able to have a place to get tested without needing a car. And, um, you know, in these days of COVID, we are kind of not wanting people to get on public transportation or get a ride from someone if they are concerned enough about their exposure that they need a test. So the Missouri, the MU Student Health Center opened a temporary outdoor COVID testing site uh, earlier this week. So that is being covered. So that's a great news. But Jenny, I, you know, so here we are talking about um, challenges on campus and the challenges with opening schools. And um, you had an opportunity to witness some activities in bars and other recreational facilities in the evening time on Friday and Saturday night. And I'd love to hear what your perception was. Yeah, well, Elizabeth, I decided to stay up really late past most of our bedtime to see what was happening downtown. As we know, the students return in right now, I, you know, it was over 40% of our cases um, coming in over the last week have been in that 20 to 24 year old age range. And so we know that they were to socialize. And a lot of the states, as we've said before on the show, have statewide mandates that all bars are closed. And a lot of states have um, outdoor restaurant only, right? And so there is a petition circulating to bring that here to Columbia, Missouri, but we don't have it yet. And we have our bars and restaurants open. There is some restrictions in place. So what the current health order states, which is expiring actually this week, um, but what it states is that capacity has to be below 100 and that you have to wear your mask to your table, be seated, and then only 10 people total can be at one table. Um, And then if you decide to get up from your table, you need to put your mask back on to walk about the restaurant or the the, um, bar. Or to dance or socialize or congregate. Yes. And that there's no bar service allowed. So you can't go up to the counter of the bar and order a beer. So I thought, well, how is this actually happening in practice? Right. So I Cuz that's a my, very different that's very different than what people are used to in bars. Right. Yeah. So Friday night uh, around 11, I took my dog Nick and we went and went for a walk around downtown. Um and what I saw um not going in on Friday night was that a majority of the bars were allowing customers to come up to the bar. And these are the bars that I could see in the windows, right? So there's some bars um, that you can't see into at all. And that we'll talk about that on the Saturday Night Night Adventure. But the bars that you could see in the windows, I could see people sitting at the counters. I could see people going up to the counters to order. Um, I could see people wandering around the bars without a mask. Um, for the bars that did have outdoor seating, um, it appears that most of them were, were meeting the requirements of 10 people to a table. Um, but I witnessed a employee that was going from these 10 person tables without a mask on. Um, and clearly that's a violation, right? All employees need to be wearing a mask. I witnessed people get up from their tables and not put their mask back on before they were leaving the building. Right. So they were walking out mask free. Um, so we see a lot of violations there. And then we saw large groups of people like lines 
of people outside of the bars, so standing on the public sidewalk so densely that you couldn't walk through the public sidewalk um, without, you know, coming within six feet of these people, and they were not wearing masks. So there was lines outside of several bars that are popular with our um, college demographic that were dense and not wearing masks. And so, you know, we say even outdoors, if you can't maintain social distance, that you need to wear a mask. I I think we're probably a lot more generous about enforcing that. But as we see these bars reaching capacity, remember, of 100, and so they have people in huge congregants waiting to go into the bar, um, we have a problem. Well, then we have some bars that say, to hell with it, and we'll just let in more than 100 people. So night two, (laughs) so Saturday night around 11 o'clock, I decided to go dog-free so that I could maybe go into some of these um, bars that I couldn't see into because they have either blacked out windows or curtains down. And I thought, okay, this is really brave. I'm not going to stay any more than 15 minutes in any establishment. There was one bar owner who was, who was being very vocal on social media. And he said, you know, we are getting a bad rap. Bars in general are getting a bad rap because we've got some bad actors and we need to weed out those bad actors and, um, allow us who are doing good, following the rules, to stay in business. So um, I I will say, I want to step back. As I drove around, you know, before I parked to walk the dog, I drove around first on Friday night, and I noticed that one bar was pretty full. By the time I walked down there, it was totally empty. And I thought, huh, how did that happen? Um, And it took me a little while to get around the loop, and I thought, well, did kids just leave? I, I don't know. But night two, I drive around um, to decide where I'm going to go first. And I I clearly see that Silver Ball is the place I'm going to start. So I park my car and I start to walk down. And I was like, okay, am I going to be brave enough to go in? And you really just can't get good visual of what's going on in the bar unless you go in. So I go to go into the bar and the bar door guy said, oh, we're being shut down right now, so you can't come in. So I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. Is Silver Ball is definitely not following the rules in this moment, so much so that the health department and the Columbia Police Department have stepped in to shut this bar down. So I go to the next bar, the bar owner who's been, you know, very vocally bragging that they are following all the rules, and I decide to take a seat at a table outdoors. Um, so I order a drink, and I just observe. Um, there's people, There, no table is more than, 10, uh, they definitely 210, um, sitting in small booths, right, packed into it. Uh, tables are leaving the outdoor area without a mask on. And I thought, okay, you know, this is outdoors. And then at some point, there's a group that is kind of standing at their table dancing, and they're like, let's go into the dance floor. And I was like, there's an inside to this? <laughs> so I decide to venture in as well. And, of course, there is... Um, tables jam-packed little booths full of kids, but there's not that many people in the bar. So when I say jam-packed, there's there's only like three really full tables, but those tables are to their fullness. And then there was, you know, like a couple people on the dance floor without masks. Um, and there was people wandering from space to space without masks. But the bar was not crowded. It, it was not over 100 in capacity. But even with just those three big tables, the bar wasn't able to mandate or enforce 
the mask requirement as you move about. All right, I love yeah. questions. Yeah, well, I just wanted to note that the Silver Ball, um, their owner, uh, Nick Parks, told KMU that um, all we can do is difficult to enforce masking and social distancing and staff couldn't keep up. And that all they can do is continue to do our best under the circumstances. If patrons want bars to remain open, they will need to abide by the rules. So I think that, um, you know, this offloading of responsibility of from the people who run the establishments, make money off of the establishments, are, uh, you know, long-term actors in our community, are the people who, you know, know and love the people who will become infected and uh, perhaps die from these irresponsible actions. I don't think it's okay as a business owner to say that it's really on the patrons of a bar, Um, especially when... Your business model is to serve people intoxicating beverages, which we all know impair people's ability to make good decisions. And I think the statement makes it clear that bar owners can't enforce these rules. And so if the rules are set because we believe that they're necessary to protect the public health of our community and the rules are explicitly being stated that they can't be followed and observationally not being followed, you know, I know we've said it before, but it is time to close our bars when we have spread this high. Right. Public health messages to be helpful need to be clear. And the public health message we have about bars right now is very unclear. Well, it's okay to go in them, but only 100 people, and you have to sit at a table, but only 10 people at a table, and when you get up, you need to put on your mask. These are difficult to... um, to abide by and will take, there'll be a long learning curve for people to abide by them. Um, Of course, as you say, they're expiring this week. What day are they expiring? Do you know for sure? Or is it just sometime this week? Oh, Elizabeth, you would ask me and I am not positive, but it is. Uh, Yeah. So I I didn't want to put you on the spot because none of us know, but what we know is that these are not permanent orders. And so I guess it's possible that by next weekend, um, they wouldn't even be in place. To be I think what, what is clear is that an order will be likely extended, but what will be in that order? And I think this is a real opportunity for us to, as a community to vocalize what we would like to see in that order. Right, right. So did you want to talk about the change.org petition, which is uh, very similar in wording to the letter that's posted on my website, um, but change.org, it turns out, is a much more efficient way to get signatures than um, a private website. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned earlier that the uh, Columbia Public School right now, they have a really great website. We'll post it on our social media of a 14-day rate calculator that is looking at, and our target is 50 cases per 10,000 in order to have two-day-a-week school, and that's the Minnesota model. Um, I do want to note that the um, Columbia, Missouri National Education Association, um, what I would refer to as the teachers' union, did meet with um, Superintendent Stiepelman on on Friday, and um, they are requesting or negotiating that they want that number lowered to 30 cases instead of 50. And what that would mean um, when we look at the current numbers is that we, unfortunately, this week exceeded that um, 30 case number. So if they do move it down to what the Columbia um, Teaching uh, 
National Educators Association is requesting, we would start totally online. And the announcement is coming out today on how the Columbia Public School will start. So I really want to note uh, that there, there are some really vital and important um, events that are happening in the now. Um, so there is a change.org petition. Um, it's called Increased Regulations to Ensure Essential Services in Columbia, Missouri. It has over 200 and almost 50 signatures, and it just went online yesterday. Um, and as uh, most of the listeners know, Dr. Alleman had a, a letter up on her website that had been signed by many health professionals throughout um, the, the service area that requested that if we are, uh, you know, unable to meet our essential service need and, and deeming that education of our students would be an essential service, and if that we're going above that positive rate per day average, that we cannot provide the essential service of education to our students, that we need to scale back on other high-risk activities that have been identified by um, many national and international health organizations, with obviously bars being the higher risk. So the petition calls for the closing of bars to restrict restaurants to outdoor eating and takeout service, um, to close entertainment facilities. And the city defines entertainment facilities very specifically. So that would be indoor theaters, lounges, arcades, bowling alleys. And interestingly, um, you know, a bar owner pointed out to me that Silver Ball is not a bar. It's actually an entertainment facility because of their arcades. So um, restricting bars would not necessarily um, close Silver Ball. Um, it would need to be restricting indoor entertainment facilities as well, and then indoor gyms and fitness centers. Thoughts and questions, Elizabeth? Yeah, so, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, coming across an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine published on the 24th, I guess the 21st, it's a letter, and what they're looking at is they analyze the um, the data about the um, risk factors that are um, that that uh, teachers in public schools and parents of public school students um, experience and that about half of parents and teachers of public school uh, students um, are at increased risk for severe complications from COVID-19. So I think this is one of those questions that we've had is that often we're thinking about the risk to the students, but the students aren't the only ones in the building. And the question is, you know, how, what, what are we doing as far as placing our teachers at risk? And I don't, I haven't read the National Education Association's local chapters um, uh, request to the public schools, but I imagine it has to do with concerns about um, the health factors experienced, uh, the health risk experienced by uh, their members by going into buildings with um, large numbers of people in them. Um, and, you know, I think we've all had these conversations about how it's going to be difficult to change all of the practices that we need to change in order to lower the risk of transmission. So how well will um, students uh, adapt to mask wearing and distancing and how far apart do the deaths need to be. And these are things we don't really know that well. So that has been an interesting thing. And so I was fascinated when you, to see that you had um, linked on social media to the, the report about the teachers union um, requesting um, basically more safety for their members. 
Right. And I think that we all appreciate and understand that. And it might be that we find that opening the Columbia Public Schools puts our case rate too high, um, that they will be online as well. But when we think about what we are doing and what we are allowing, shouldn't the essential services be first and foremost before these non-essential services? And, you know, as a college town and one of the most highly educated towns in the nation, I think that we all agree that education and academics are one of the essential services to what we can provide and that we know that there's huge inequity that just exists. And we, we, it's virtually impossible to possible to eliminate them by going all virtually. And so we are going to create further disparities. We know that we are going to set women back an entire generation um, because they bear the burden of taking care of the children. Um, So it is vital to the economics of our community that if anything is working, our schools are working. Absolutely. And so to be placing um, recreational facilities, entertainment facilities ahead of our school seems like a really twisted prioritization. And and I don't I, I don't want to accuse anybody of of deliberately making that. It's it's what happens when we don't act. So I think that when our local leaders, our city council and our county commissioners fail to act by placing restrictions on other things, what they are in effect doing is choosing um, entertainment facilities over schools. Um, and even Anthony Fauci this this week made, a, made the same um, connection that schools are really important. And if we want to open our schools, we'll probably have to close down some other things. And BARS was on his list as well. So, Elizabeth, you wanted to talk about convalescent plasma. Yeah. So there are a couple of little news things that I want to say. So convalescent plasma that is taking the um, part of people's blood that carries the antibodies um, from people who've recovered and injecting that, transfusing that into people who are currently sick has been a... Um, it's an age-old uh, treatment. It apparently was used during the 1918-1919 uh, influenza pandemic, and it's been used um, for many things, um, tetanus and rabies and various things. Um, and so we've been using it uh, in an experimental capacity. It's now gotten emergency use authorization, so now it can be used more widely. Sadly, the data we have so far is in a non-controlled trial, so they were trialing this, I think, to demonstrate safety. It looks like there is a dose-response curve, that is, the people who got the higher dosages and got it earlier did better than the people who got it later, but there was no control arm, and I'm hoping that those studies will go forward. Sometimes once we get emergency authorization, these studies are harder to do. Um, so that's kind of some exciting thing. It is, I will say that it is not a, you know, um, a hit it out of the park kind of uh, therapy. It's not that people get it and then suddenly leap out of their beds, but um, it seems to be a promising therapy. The other thing that's exciting is that the Yale spit test that we've all heard about got emergency use authorization. Uh, my initial inquiries this morning tell me that Boone Hospital Center is not uh, planning on using the Yale um, spit test, but that apparently a uh, an organization in Missouri is attempting to develop a similar test, and that they're looking at using that one. I have n- I do not have a person that I can contact easily at the university, but I'll be interested to see whether that becomes available. The lovely part about that is that um, 
they've tried to develop it to make it really inexpensive and to not need to use transport medium and reagents that are in short supply or that are expensive. So, um, and this was done with a collaboration between Yale and the National Basketball Association. So, um, happy to hear that is going on. And then I also wanted to talk about the Centers for Disease Control. Um, published a um, some experience about um, looking at transmission of COVID in child care programs in Rhode Island. So Rhode Island opened their child care uh, facilities in uh, June when their cases were declining with some pretty strict regulations in place. And what they noticed was that, first of all, the regulations were hard to continue because one of them, it, they're expensive. You have to have small groups of people of students, children cared for by the um, a continuously stable person. So I'm not trying to say that other people aren't, aren't stable. You want to keep the people the same so that it's the same uh, child care providers and the same students in the same room uh, day to day, week to week, rather than switching that around. And that the business model is to cover each other during holidays and sick time. And so it just gets to be um, difficult to keep those uh, cohorts stable. But when they did, and they did good masking and hand um, hygiene and various other things, what they noticed was that there was not uh, very many cases where a student or a staff person or a family member who tested positive that there was not significant transmission through the child care facility. Um, so there were people who got uh, COVID and they were able to limit the spread within the facility to a very small number of people who appeared to get it from their connection in the child care facility. So this is good news that there are safe ways to do it. The bad news is that it's going to cost more. And I know that the cost of child care is one of the biggest um, challenges for uh, working parents. I think that what this points out, though, Elizabeth, is right now we're really doing human experiments, right? We don't know exactly how to control the virus. And so, you know, I am not criticizing the Columbia Public Schools because I am very grateful that they have a clear metric that we need to meet to get our schools open. But, you know, we're following a Minnesota model. I am not aware of anybody else in the nation doing, um, you know, like other schools are now popping up to do it, but we don't have data yet on what does two-day versus five-day school do. And when we talk about keeping steady cohorts, what I've heard a lot of parents say is, you know, now I need to find childcare for those three days a week that my children aren't in Columbia Public School. And so, again, not criticizing, but I want us to note in looking at this New Jersey study that we are doing live experiments on people with a deadly virus. Which we almost have to do because we don't, Mm -hmm. we don't know. And we have to, we have to do some of these things. So it is just, just, just know that we're all doing our best. And I just wish that we would be a little bit more honest about this um, to, to be clear about what our priorities are and why they're that way. And instead of saying, well, we believe this to be safe. If we would just say, we think this is the safest way we can figure it out, and we know that this is an essential thing, so we'd like to try it. Um, and I, I think that that would be a little bit clearer message. I agree. Yeah. And yeah. I do think that we've come up with a way that, you know, bringing students in for two days will, you know, 
it narrows the exposure to half of the students they would be exposed to on uh, a normal day, you know, because we're putting um, the letters, I believe, through L on Monday, Tuesday, and then um, the following letters on Thursday, Friday, with the school closed on Wednesday. So obviously decreasing the number. And as we think about how do we provide distance for those students, those six feet that we're requesting, this gives the school a whole lot better ability as our case counts go up. Um, again, the question is, what do we, what do we want to try and what are we going to let keep going on? And, you know, I think we failed to mention earlier that um, Silver Ball was not the only place that closed down this weekend. Um, Brookside Midtown Pool also closed down. Um, I was at the Columbia Farmers Market on Saturday morning when my daughter texted me a picture of a Snapchat of the pool. And I thought, oh, please tell me this is a fake image and not happening in the moment. I even zoomed in on the picture to see if I could see anybody with a mask. You know, is the mask on their wrist? Is it, you know, like... In this day and age, it's really rare to see a picture where you can't, you know, it's like a Where's Waldo, you can't find a mask in a picture. Um, and I zoomed in and I couldn't find the mask. And I actually dismissed it in the moment. I thought, oh, no, this, this is not a now picture. Um, and then a couple hours later, we did read that the um, Brookside Midtown pool had over 100, they estimate between 100 and 120 um, students in a very, or community members in a very small space. Um, And we're going to have to cut, I hate to cut you off, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Uh, We do need to pass the torch back to Mallory so that we can um, keep uh, uh, consistency with our uh, uh, schedule this morning. So I want to remind everybody to uh, wash their hands, wear a mask, keep your distance, take your vitamin D, and cultivate a cheerful confidence that you can handle a viral infection. And then we'll be back in your ears on Wednesday with Jenny's show, and I'll be back on Monday morning. Thank you both so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. And uh, we wrapped up right, right, right at the right time. So thank you both. Okay. Bye, Bye Mallory. Bye, Jenny. Bye. Thank you. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. If you missed uh, any... I'm sorry. If you missed any of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at KOPN.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Community Pulse is moving to two broadcasts per week, as Dr. Alleman mentioned. So catch us live at 9 a.m. on Wednesday and then again on Monday. Coming up next is a new program on the KOPN docket. It's called Between the Lines, and it's a weekly syndicated half-hour radio news magazine featuring progressive perspectives on national and international issues. For fans of background briefing, please don't worry. We will play it in its its entirety twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 to 10 a.m. So you can catch that here on KOPN tomorrow. Today, we'll have lots of sun with a high near 94, a clear night tonight with a low of 68, and tomorrow, another high in the 90s. I think we'll get to 95 with a nighttime low of 71. Thank you so much for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned and have a great day.